Welcome back to another episode of the Evidence-Based Education Podcast. In this episode, recorded at our Assessment Lead Programme Residential in August 2017, you'll hear from one of the world's foremost experts on assessment. Professor Peter Timms, Professor at Durham University's School of Education, provides an overview of the assessment landscape at present. We hope you find this useful, and if you do, don't forget to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or in your usual podcast place. Thanks very much, and uh, morning to everyone. Uh, good to see you all. Um, I'm going to uh, start off here, if this thing's going to work. No? Try this one. Okay, I'm going to begin with uh, this introduction, which is now, uh, which is uh, explaining what I'm going to say. This will be about three quarters of an hour. Then we're going to look at the varieties of assessment, different types of assessment, and the purposes and, and everything involved with them, um, and moved on to uh, the formats of the assessment, different types of assessment that are used, uh, and then the recent developments. So this is a kind of overview of what's happening, and we won't go into the specifics of them, but give a feel for what's actually happening out there. And I can't get away without mentioning George Rash, so I'll spend a little time on that, and I'm sure you'll hear more about um, that theory of uh, education assessment as time goes on, uh, and then say something about the quality of assessment and how you would assure that, how you would know it, or rather what questions you should ask, maybe not finding answers, but uh, exploring that. Okay, so um, assessment, uh, and it's everywhere, <clears throat> and I'm going to start by just asking you to write down, each of you, um, separately, without talking, three different purposes of assessment. Why have you been assessed on different occasions? And then I'm going to pick at random and we'll get up with the list. So just a few seconds, just three reasons why you do assessment. <coughs> The button on the right-hand side. Okay, that what's that one for? That goes back, and then that one ah, goes forward. Okay, thank you. So. Maybe you could just write these up as people do. I'm going yeah, to sure. I'll, I'll your, miss your help. Okay, good. We're going to uh, we're going to go around, and um, our scribe <laughs> is going to just write these down, and we'll see what kind of list we start with. Maybe we could just start here. Could you just tell me number one on your list? Um, transferring skills. Transferring skills. Okay, followed by. Um, to help people make progress. Okay. Okay, so assessing where they are in order to, to see the next stage. Okay, forming planning. Kind of similar to the, to the, the progress, but yes, forming planning, yeah. Uh, reporting to, um, to parents. parents, okay, parental reporting, or maybe to others as well. Understand students' starting points and next steps. Okay, okay, there's good evidence that if you do an assessment before you start a course, that your pupils or students will make more progress later on. Uh, to check understanding. Okay, okay. Again, for teaching purposes. Um, well, can be for self as well. Oh, oh, right. For understanding for the teacher as well as for the student. I've done them all. Sorry? You've done them all. Done them all. Okay, yes, as we, as we go around, we'll run out. Determine teachers recognize. Okay, thank you. Yes, we st we've still got ideas, have we? Yeah, strategic planning for the organization. Ah, right, so a kind of higher level one, moving outside the classroom. No, okay. Okay, planning, okay. For bad budgets, did you say? And planning, okay. Any more? Ah, right, okay. Feedback to the student, that is. Okay, could be feedback to the teacher as well, coming back to that point there. Ah, right, okay. Again, a kind of planning one, but a specific one there, folks. Yeah. No, you're running out. Okay, you're running out. 
Okay, um, any more? Okay, again, a higher level one, looking not just in the individual or the classroom, but at a higher level one. That could be a whole country, even, that we might be talking about. That's it? That's it? Okay, for the ability. Policy. Policy, okay. Okay, thank you. Okay, good. Well, that's, that's quite a list, and I would venture to suggest that it's not exhaustive. Um, and I'm going to put up a list that I prepared earlier. We might just look at a kind of overlap and see the extent to which we're, we're kind of agreeing on that um, as we come down. So certification. Some people would finish up from school with certificates, or you'd finish up with a driving certificate. Um, you might be for admissions for deciding who's going to be your representative at the 100 meters in the Olympics, or deciding who's going to enter Durham University. Or the selection is a similar process within that. Maybe accountability, and that was kind of implicit in what some people said, but it's certainly there in the background. Maybe allocation resources, that was specifically mentioned by, by some people that we were talking there. Research purposes, so that's a separate purpose in itself, and schools will be often asked, certainly in England, if they will do some assessments for us. In fact, uh, when we uh, did a project recently and we wrote to the schools and said, We've been, you've been picked out at random, would you please take part and use these questionnaires? And they said, we've been picked out as a random picked school so many times, I'm just not going to do this. So in England, it's become so much part of people's master's courses and PhD courses that it's become oppressive to the schools on occasions. So evaluation in general terms, evaluation of particular projects, evaluations of people, evaluations of courses, maybe for monitoring, just tracking children over time, tracking schools over time, tracking countries over time, which was mentioned there. Um, identification of special needs. So does this particular child is autistic or dyslexic or, or whatever else, or gifted? So identification of that with the intention of intervention. Or maybe in the preparation of teaching, which was mentioned, which was mentioned several times. <coughs> And then the feedback loop that you would have coming back to teachers and the rest. And of course, there's assessment for learning, um, a kind of mantra for some people that assessment is for learning. And the idea being that we collect the data in order to help people learn. And that goes back to inside the black box and the work by various researchers suggesting that if you take a piece of work and you mark it, and then you give back the mark, it has almost no effect on the children, but if you give back the feedback on how to get better, that's what matters. And that if you give the mark, it can just destroy the feedback on how to get better. Okay, so there's randomized controlled trials suggesting that. And the whole of Scotland went for assessment for learning and that kind of mantra. They moved back from it a little bit, but that's what they've done. Okay, well, I think that that does correspond to a large extent to what we, we came from you. There's maybe a bit more from you and, and a, a little bit more from my side there. Okay. There's also informal assessment going on, and we shouldn't dismiss that because it's an important part of what's going on there. So it's just part of life. All the time we're assessing things. So we've come into this room and you've kind of assessed the temperature of the room and the acoustics of the room and the light in the room. Um, and it's part of teaching and it's part of uh, when you're teaching, you're assessing the children all the time, the students. You're assessing who's taking notice, who's yawning, who's about to cause trouble and so on. Uh, and a good teacher will be aware of what's happening in that room, reading the class and being with it in the classroom. 
but it's also part of being taught so that the student is assessing the teacher all the time as well. So there's a kind of two-way thing going on here uh, that we shouldn't forget. <coughs> so I could bring this into broad categories and think about official assessments and informal assessments, but also make this distinction between objective assessments and subjective assessments. So the subjective assessments, it's my opinion, I think you're a good egg, I don't think you're a troublemaker, I think you're a bright lad, and, and so on. So there's informal assessments happening all the time with different words and different ways of thinking. Um, but there are objective assessments, and there might be some people in the literature who say, oh, there's no such thing as objective. But uh, what I'm really thinking about objective, it would, wouldn't matter who did the assessment. It wouldn't matter who did it. You'd come out with the same answer. And so it would be invariant, invariant across the different circumstances. If you come across the same result, whoever does it, whatever happens, then you would agree on that. So that if you're measuring somebody's height, somebody's weight, those are objective assessments. We should get the same answer, whoever does it. So we might be able to put examples into each of those boxes, official objective assessments. Well, I think you wouldn't have any trouble thinking of some of those, um, a kind of uh, multiple choice uh, um, mental arithmetic test would fit that. Uh, an official subjective assessment. When you appoint people to posts, it's your opinion on whether they were good enough to be the head of department for um, PE in your school. That's probably not an objective assessment, but it's subjective within that. Informal, objective. Well, if you weighed yourself in the morning, um, that's a kind of informal thing, but it would be objective data for you on an informal way. And informal subjective, well, how was your breakfast this morning? And we would do that. So there'd be kind of examples in that. <coughs> what about the different types of assessment? Well, we've already mentioned some of them. Um, and um, there are, of course, traditional forms of assessment that you all have experienced when you yourselves were at school, um, but there are ones that you yourself are producing and maybe your school's producing it. So there's a pencil and paper test. So you would do that, you would, somebody would mark it by hand and then you'd have a, a score, six out of 10 or whatever it is. Um, you might do that on an individual basis or you might do it on a group basis. You might have all of the kids in one year group in the hall doing the assessment at one time but the psychologist might come in and do an individual assessment with that. So you would hope to get better data if you were doing it on an individual basis. It's certainly much more expensive to do it like that. Um, but there's clear advantage on the individual bit rather than that. And the modern way to get that individual one would be to move it onto a computer so that it's uh, adapted to the individual. And I'll say something about that in a while. But don't forget that some of this can be by observation. So by watching and picking up data systematically or getting an impression is also a way of assessment. So that before appointing a member of staff to your school, in an ideal world, you would go and watch them in situ, uh, teaching lessons or making assessments of what's going on there, knowing that interviews are very poor as assessment instruments. We'll be thinking about reliability and how reliable something is, going from a scale from naught to one, so one is perfect. So the reliability of the interviews are typically about 0 0.2, 0 0.3, meaning if two different people do it, they get different kind of results. Um, and, and also the validity, does it pick out the teacher who's going to be a good teacher in the future? Well, not by interview. 
Um, and then there are uh, clinical and psychometric uh, assessments. So the psychologist uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s would come in and give all the cues, IQ scores. Uh, they might come in and, and assess them on other things as well, but they'll still continue to do those kinds of things on an individual basis. But there are more recent um, ways of assessing, uh, and it's worth mentioning those without dismissing the earlier ones that are there. So there's computer adaptive assessments that I'm going to spend a little while talking about and <coughs> explaining and, and thinking about and some of the advantages of those, there may be disadvantages as well, as one example from CHEM, which was the Incas, and there's the computer adaptive baseline test, um, but there are computer uh, adaptive assessments. The very large-scale international assessments, so you might have come across things like PEARLS, TIMS, PISA, um, that uh, you run by many countries across the world. Every few years they do the same one and then they hit the headlines. PISA is the one that's hit the be most headlines, although it may not be the best of uh, psychometric assessments. And there's comparative judgment where um, the, um, the latest um, kind of thing is no more marking. Uh, this goes back to uh, theories from the 1930s by a, a psychometrician called uh, Thurston. Uh, and the idea there is that you would um, not uh, mark the essay by reading it and giving it a grade, but rather you'd compare it with another essay and say it was better or worse. Uh, and if you do that enough times, you can finish up with a scale and a grade. Rather, and we're better at comparative judgments in general as humans than we are at giving grades in isolation. Let me just pause and see if anybody's got any comments or thoughts before I move on. Feel free to interrupt me as I go on. Okay, so um, and let me look at a, a traditional test. Um, so maybe this is a, a teacher in an elementary school and um, writing um, a spelling test for kids. Um, and the teacher in the head think, well, there's some uh, very kids who are not very good at spelling, and uh, there's some who are very good at spelling, and so I'll write some items for those kids. I'll just write this uh, test, and so what I do is I write some items um, which vary in their difficulty across the scale. I make sure that I've got some really easy items for the kids who aren't very good, so make sure that they've got something right, and I make sure that I've got some items at the top end there. So I finish up with a test where I've written the items, uh, give out the test, then cut them in and mark them, and then I would give them a grade back and I would say what the percentage was, what the mark was, or give them a, an A, B, or C, or whatever it was. I could do that the night before and use it on the day. And when I analyze it, I would be thinking about percentages right and wrong. <coughs> We're using what's called classical test theory. After it, I could go into more detail and look at all of those questions and ask if they were good questions. Did I have a sufficient spread here? I might ask about some of the items. Were they discriminating? Did they make a difference between those who got high scores and low scores? I might ask, um, did, I get the spread of, did I get the spread right? Did I hit the, the right mail? But I would finish up with data at the end and I could analyze it. And there's a big psychometric theory which allows me to do it. And all the exam boards have traditionally used this classical test theory. And you get out reliability measures and discrimination measures uh, and, and other things. And that would inform the later ones. And uh, I could do it, as I said before, without having tried it out. I can just write it and do it. <clears throat> but there is an alternative way to do that. And a bit like the 
um, the psychologist who comes in and indiv assesses an individual child. And in that case, um, we've got the same scale we know, but now we're trying to find an individual's position on that scale. So here is where that individual is, but we don't know that. We're trying to find out where they are. So one tactic that we could use would be to start off by asking them that very easy item. They get it right, so we know that they're more able than that. So we ask them a harder question. They get that right, so we ask them a harder question, and now she gets it wrong, so we think that she's somewhere between those two points. So we ask her an easier question, she gets that one right, and gradually we home in on her ability. So if you do that, you can finish up asking her far fewer questions than she would if she was given the whole test. Because you don't have to waste your time giving her more hard items that she couldn't do or easy items that she could have done years ago. In fact, you'll finish up with about a third of the items that you would have used for that individual. So it's quicker, it's more efficient. We'll know where her position is on that scale. But the downside is that I need to know how, how difficult those items are before I started. So I couldn't do it the night before unless I guessed how difficult the items are. And although we could all do that as teachers, in fact, the evidence is that most often when the exam boards write items, they find it very hard to judge how hard the item is until they've used it with a group of students. They quite often get that wrong. They misjudge it, and that's true of all of us. It's a kind of failing within us, although internally we don't quite believe it. We reckon we know how hard an item is, but then you discover that, in fact, you get it wrong. So you've got to get the difficulty of those items beforehand. But once you've got them, you can then apply this algorithm. And then that would give you a computer adaptive assessment. And the way to get at that difficulty of the item is to use that uh, test theory I was talking about called rash measurement. That comes from George Rash that I was talking about earlier. So to prepare a, a test where you just write it, a vocabulary item, and you use it across a nation, uh, and you wanted to get standardized scores so you'd know what the population had, it might take you a month. In order to produce a test like this one, which is computer adaptive, and you need to know the items, and you need to have a lot of items at the high end for the more able children, a lot of items at the bottom end, might take you a year. So the preparation for this is a lot longer and more difficult than the preparation for the other one. But there are clear advantages to it. You've got to do it individually, so it could be a one-to-one, -one, but the computer would probably handle it for you. Anybody want to say anything? <coughs> okay, the other thing I wanted to mention was about PISA. Um, <clears throat> so this is an international assessment, and I'm going to share with you a couple of slides that come from um, uh, a PISA presentation. Um, So uh, that'll have all the data that we need to know about this. So PISA is produced by the OECD. That's the Economic uh, Productive uh, Countries of the World. Uh, and the name to spot on the bottom here is Andrea Schleicher. So he is the originator of this assessment and the one who promulgates it around the world. 
Um, he has a son doing an undergraduate degree here in Durham at the moment, so we've had him over here on a number of occasions, so we know him quite well. Um, uh, he, and he um, is a very persuasive character um, and has persuaded countries to do this on a very large scale. The idea is that a whole country, we would select representative samples of students 15 years old and then we would test them on different terms of literacy. So mathematical literacy, not maths, mathematical literacy. How good are you at dealing with mathematical problems for the real world? Scientific literacy and reading literacy. And then we would be able to compare countries around the world and look in different aspects of them. I'm going to look at one um, part of that. Okay. I'm going to try another one in a minute. <laughs> so this is a, an example of the PISA um, in 2012. It's about every three years. It's been running from just over a decade. And it's rank ordering the countries um, in uh, their scores on the test. <clears throat> the scores have a, an average of 500, which is in the middle there. And then it goes right up to the scores for Hong Kong. And it comes right down to the scores for Italy and Portugal. And there are massive differences between the average performance of those countries in their math scores. This chart and charts like it have had a massive impact on education throughout the world. Some countries saw this and could hardly believe their own position. It's called the Pisa shock. And it happened also with the TIMS. That's phonologically the same as me, but nothing to do with me. So it, it happened with TIMS dealing with maths and science in the earlier years. Uh, and countries like Germany, Russia, and others looked at these and said, we, we, we can't accept this. We're going to reform our system. And they have reformed the whole of their education systems on the basis of data of this sort. So there are massive differences between the average student in Hong Kong doing mathematics <coughs> and the average student in Italy. Someone like the Russian Federation sees themselves down the bottom there, and they pride themselves on their mathematical prowess, and they're just horrified when they see something like that and either don't believe it and reject it, or they need to do something about it. It's created internal turmoil within countries. In order to do this, first of all, you have to have representative samples from your countries. So that's the first challenge. And the way they do it, they will break up the country into different areas, and then in the areas they pick schools at random, so that there's no reason why this, country, this country school or that school. Then within the schools, they pick students at random within that age group or that uh, grade group. There's some controversies to which should happen. Then, they're tested on maths, but they're all speaking different languages. So you've got to have the same maths test, which is equivalently diffi difficult in different languages. So for maths, 2 plus 2 equals, you can probably translate easily into different languages. But in fact, those PISA tests aren't just straight maths questions. They're long paragraphs explaining a maths problem. And that has to be translated into Cantonese or into Malayalam or whatever other language you're dealing with. And then they have to be equated. That's not an easy thing to do. And it's subject to a lot of challenges and people suggesting that this isn't right because they didn't get the equating right in the first place. They've done it up till now on pencil and paper. And they do what's called matrix sampling. That means they've got <coughs> lots and lots and lots and lots of items, but an individual student only sees some of the items. But there's an overlap, so everybody sees common items. 
So that means that you can assess a broader range of material than a straightforward single test. And then you would be able to infer what people would got on the basis of what they got in that. But it also means that they keep back a certain number of items which are secret every year. So three years later when they do it, they then use those secret items and they're able to equate the tests from one uh, round to another round. The consequence is that a score of 500, one trial, means the same as a 500 three years later and three years later. So you can see if a country is going up or going down. And if you read the OECD press, you'll get the impression that the countries are changing dramatically as they implement PISA advice. This is completely wrong. The countries have been remarkably static over the years. Almost no country has really transformed its standing in these league tables over a decade. Biggest effect from one country was about 0.2 of an effect size. Um, and the correlation between the rank order position in maths from one to the next gets as high as 0.99. The rank orders remain absolutely static, and policy makes almost no difference. Well, there's a lot to be uh, untangled about that, uh, but I, I won't go to it. I want to show you one other, so that's a little uh, challenge for me, and maybe for the people who might help me with this. Um, I'm going to share one other uh, chart with you from it which comes to here. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> okay, so this chart is the same as the chart before on the axis going up and down. So still the highest school the country there will be Hong Kong over on the right-hand side, and the lowest were coming down here to Portugal and Italy. But they've put in an extra axis this way, and this is what's called equity. That is how equal the students are for the same home background. Okay? So that if students from a high socioeconomic status and a low socioeconomic status are performing equally, that's high equity on the right-hand side. If the um, equity is very different, that is, there's a big difference between the rich and the poor, then they appear on the left-hand side. And the point is here that there are some countries who have high attainment and high equity. And those countries would include Japan, Canada, Finland. But there are some countries that have high attainment but massive discrepancy between the rich and the poor, and they'd be over on the left-hand side like Belgium. And the challenge put up by the OECD is not just to get high attainment, but to get high attainment for everybody, whatever their background. Well, these are very influential things. And the one country that's managed to do something about that is Germany, where they've actually shifted their uh, equity status on that, but not the average Yes, okay. So, um, yes, there is. And, and in fact, there's a, a large um, part of the research literature which has looked at spending on education and attainment in education. In general, as a general rule, the amount of money that a country has predicts their position in those league tables. But it's only a, a proportion of the variance, so that you will find that the more affluent countries do better and the less <coughs> affluent countries do worse. And that's a general finding. Uh, in fact, over the last um, decade, uh, we have found an increase in affluence amongst the OECD countries. They've become richer over the last decade. 
and their scores have risen, and they've risen more or less in parallel with the increase in economic success. It's also the case that um, parents who have more money have children who do better, but that varies from country to country, but it's always the case, even in the countries where the less is true. There has been a challenge put down in the literature which says that, oh, you can look at some poor countries and you can find that they've got massive class sizes with poorly paid teachers and they're doing better than these rich countries. I'll just give you an example here. If you go to central India, to Secunderabad, Hyderabad, um, you would find at one stage um, in the beginning of the, the 2000s, there was a jumbo jet full of programmers going to the United States every week. They were coming from classes of 60 with teachers who are very poorly paid. So when you've got that kind of thing going on and then you're thinking about the rich and the privileged <laughs> sitting on the backsides and achieving very little, you, you can kind of argue from that case study. But in general, that isn't true. Okay. But there is a, a challenge that when you spend more money, should you get higher scores? Well, you should, but there isn't a straightforward relationship there. And there is a, an argument in the literature, um, there is a, uh, an educational economist by the name of Hanushek um, that is worth looking at if you want to follow that up. And the challenges come from people like Larry Hedges, a statistician in the United States. One arguing that this more money doesn't make any difference, you're just throwing money, wasting it. Others arguing, no, you need more money, you just need to spend it better. Yes, yeah, so there, there are examples of attempts to reform educational systems which have had no impact. Um, so there is one in the Middle East that um, I'm not going to pin down because we've got experts here and I'll uh, go wrong if I say too much, but uh, where real massive changes were put in and then people put in the policy and then people react against that policy and prevent it from being taken on board. Um, there are certain examples in Ireland with massive reform. You'd find it in Belgium, in um, Flemish-speaking Belgium. You'd find parts of Germany. You'd find the UK. We've had massive reform in the UK. We've had Ofsted, League Tables. Um, we've had um, God knows what. You name it, it's been changed. But our position in these League Tables are absolutely static over this period. Um, so there are plenty of examples. So I'm really referring um, in what I'm writing here to a paper that I'm writing with a, a former um, PhD uh, student, uh, Cesari, uh, who's now working with uh, AQA exam boards. <clears throat> and so he's uh, spent his PhD looking at case studies within countries to see where they've changed or haven't changed, where the policies have been put in place. Um, and that paper should be out in about six months. Yeah. You're saying that they—they're not moving up in terms of the league table. Yeah. But are they all moving? Or moving up? No, so I'm talking is there an right. No, that's a good point. And often you'll hear politicians talking about our position in the league tables is going down, and then that's because more countries have come in at a higher level. Mm -hmm. But the beauty of PISA is that it has this uh, measure, which 500 is the same, and it's kept that measure the same. So the absolute level of attainment has remained constant apart from the increasing in affluence, which has mean there's been a slight increase in scores. So that's not policy-related, that's economic-related. So in general, the actual absolute levels have gone up slightly because of increased economic success, not because of education policy. Yeah? Uh, right, okay, so uh, 
know that all, every deep, I mean, we could add lots of different things in here, um, for example, so we find, say, in London that uh, such a high proportion go for personal tutoring, you have better GCSE results. Um, of course, they're not tutoring them for the PISA exam, they're tutoring for the uh, grades. So a kind of strange thing is that we've seen an increase in the UK of the grades. So people are getting higher GCSEs, higher <coughs> A-levels, more people are going to university, but the level of attainments remain constant on this over time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, it would explain some of it. And in fact, within the PISA data, you would find data on that collected and analyses of the tutoring in the spare time. So you'd find it there, you'd find it in London, you'd find it in Cyprus, for example. There's a tradition of maths tutors in the spare time. That tradition doesn't exist in other countries um, and so on. So you can probe that and go into that. Okay, um, I thought that I would mention here the no more marking, and this is the comparative um, uh, aspect, a completely different format of assessment. Um, <clears throat> and it goes back to an observation, ooh, uh, back into the 19th century, which is that um, if you ask people to give things grades or ratings, they're often surprisingly poor at it. Um, but if you ask them to compare things, they're really very good at it. So if you were asked to compare the lighting in this room or the heating in this room or how good this essay was, and then you were to give it a grade and we were to compare the reliability of those measures, they're really quite poor, surprisingly poor. <coughs> but if we ask which is biggest or is this hotter or colder or is this brighter or dimmer or is this a better essay, then we're very good at it. <laughs> so the idea is that we might mark not by giving grades but simply by comparing. So that idea had been taken up in Cambridge Assessment. Um, um, Tom Bramley, in particular, has written articles theoretically about that. And Chris Whedon, a former employee of CHEM, set up No More Marking as a spin-off company and uh, has been very successful in that. So that when you come to the marking, you do comparisons. You don't give grades. Now, if you do one comparison, two comparisons, if you keep doing comparisons of this with that, with this with that, with this with that, you can finish up with a rank order and give them grades later on. And the theory behind it is rash, uh, and that would allow you to do it. So it may be uh, nicer to do, easier to do, fairer to the student in the long run. And I think that you're going to do more of that on this, uh, on this course, so, so just kind of hang in there. In order to apply all those new approaches, be they PISA or no more marking or whatever else, um, it's important that we have computers and smartphones. And I've added smartphones on there because one way of collecting data uh, on an individual basis is to use a smartphone. So if I just give an example here. Many years ago, um, a psychologist did a groundbreaking piece of research in which he got people to wear buzzers and then a piece of paper. When the buzzer went off, they had to write down how they were feeling at the moment. Oh, I'm a bit bored about this. Oh, this is a great thing I'm doing, or I hate what I'm doing, and so on. And then he found out what they were doing at each time, and then he kind of related what they were doing to how they were feeling, and he came up with the conclusion that actually um, sitting around watching television or having a beer with your mates, or which most people would regard as relaxation, don't produce the real enjoyment. 
What he said really matters are what are called flow experiences, where you forget what time of day it is, you, you kind of just forget that you're eating meals and so on. And his big examples of that are rock climbers who go at the weekend and go up sheer faces and they completely lose sight of everything in the world around them. They just didn't mind the buzzer was going off and they have to write down that. Um, and the other person that did that were the surgeons uh, who would um, go away and do this. And whilst they're in the surgery, they're completely in the moment, completely in the flow. Um, and in fact, he recounted a, a surgeon who was so hooked on the surgery that he went away to holiday to stay by the beach and he couldn't stand it anymore, went to the local hospital, did a few bits, a few operations. So, uh, and that guy was called Sikset Mahalia um, and his idea was to collect data at different times. Now you can see that nowadays you could easily do that with a smartphone. You can get the smartphone to, to buzz on you, you can just record the data. And in fact, there are examples of apps like that and they're kind of modern assessment building on work that's done in the past. A while for IPIPs, we're collecting data, say, in the Western Cape or in, uh, in South Africa or in the favelas of uh, Brazil, the way that we do it is to have a, a booklet and a smartphone. And the, uh, uh, the adult goes through the booklet with the child, recording everything on the smartphone. The smartphones are ubiquitous and fairly cheap, so if they're stolen in the uh, townships of South Africa or in the favelas, it's not a great loss. Uh, and they're not really attractive to be lost, and yet you can upload the data automatically. So smartphones uh, and computers uh, mean that we can collect data more easily and readily. It also means for the administration of tests that you can control that, something like PISA has that central administration. Ooh, what's happened there? You can use videos and sound in these, which previously were not available, so that's a real advantage within it. Um, and there are ways in which you can mark essays using computers. So I know that English teachers who hear it don't believe it, um, but, <laughs> but in fact, uh, you can go online and you can, you can try out and put in your own material on ETS, Education Testing Service, websites and others in the United States, and they can mark and give feedback on how to improve your essay, um, and you can see the advantage of doing that cheaper. Uh, or in China, for example, in the national tests, which you use for selection for people for the university, which all the students in China are doing, they've got tests of uh, their speaking ability, and they're recorded and analyzed online. <coughs> so the use of computers in testing is really amazing in what it's doing now. And that software makes it all possible. And there are two theories. So one is Rash, and the other is Bayes. These are both named after people. So Bayes is... Um, a cleric, a, a religious uh, priest from the 19th century, Bayes' theory, and Rash, George Rash is a Danish mathematician. I'm briefly going to say something about um, Rash, and I'm rashly going to put up an equation. Um, I know that uh, the advice to people is every time you put up an equation, you lose half the audience, so I'm going to just uh, risk it. <laughs> uh, so uh, here's the equation. <clears throat> and that P means if you're doing a test, then the probability P of getting an item right is dependent on the person's ability and the item difficulty. Okay, this is the logistic equation here, and we'd immediately, if you were a mathematician, want to take logs if you saw this equation here. 
so that, but you can see the things, the P is the probability of getting an item right is entirely dependent on two things, how able the person is and how difficult the item is. So if you collected enough data, then you would be able to work out those three things. The probability of getting it right, you'd get that straight away, 50% got it right, then you would be able to work out the uh, person's ability and the uh, item difficulty. So those two things give you the entree into doing computer adaptive tests or into objective measurements or to equating tests across different languages, um, which is what they do in PISA using the equating facility within this. I'll give you one example of a, of a map that can be produced here using that when um, we assess attention deficit <coughs> hyperactivity disorder. So ADHD is uh, very widely found amongst uh, students. Um, about 2% might be diagnosed with ADHD. Um, and the way that we would do it is to collect data from different circumstances and interview people. But we can use the, uh, the items uh, used by the American Psychiatric Association and ask teachers to rate their children. So I've got data on that on 18 items, um, and we've used RASH to produce a map of the items and the people on it. Oh, no, no, skip that one. Here we are. So you'll see coming across the right-hand side the items, and they're ordered in how hard it is for somebody to endorse that about somebody. So that something like loses equipment or runs excessively or leaves the seat are fairly rare activities. The teachers don't pick that out for many children. But the one at the bottom, easily distracted or difficult sustaining attention, is more readily endorsed. And those items are not just ordered in difficulty, but they're on an equal interval scale from Rash called a logit scale. And the people are on the left-hand side and you'll notice that most people are right down here and don't have any items at all rated. So most people don't even appear on this scale. But a small number of people do, and they're at the left-hand side, and the ones right at the top would be um, probably in the zone for being diagnosed with ADHD. So you can get a feel for the items and the people's position on the items. If a person is opposite an item, say easily distracted, there are some people who are close to that, then the teacher would have about a 50-50 chance of um, uh, endorsing that item for that student. That comes back to that equation there. Okay. But you would find similar maps of items for everyone else. Okay. Um, so finally, I'm going to just mention three questions that you might uh, come back to, and I'm sure you will do as part of this course. If you're thinking about the quality of PISA or INCAS or the test that the teacher produced or whether you're appointing a member of staff, um, if you did the assessment again, would you get the same answer? This is to do with the reliability, inter-rater reliability, test-retest reliability. Is it consistent in what you're doing? Secondly, <clears throat> are you really assessing what you want to assess? So you've given them a maths test, but is it really maths, or did it depend on their ability to read the question? In PISA, the maths tests correlate 0.9 with the English tests. That's far too high, and it means that their ability to do maths in PISA was dependent on their reading ability. So PISA have their psychometrics wrong for maths. 
So we have to watch that. And you can be assessing people when you're doing an interview and be more impressed by the way they've turned out and the way that they speak rather than the substance of what they're saying. So we have to guard against those kinds of things. <clears throat> and finally, the question, um, what impact is your assessment having? So you're doing these assessments, you're spending millions of pounds on it, what's the consequence? And it can be negative. <laughs> it can be positive, but most of the time, it's neutral. Okay, so it's not always easy. And I'll stop there. Thanks very much. This episode of the Evidence-Based Education podcast was recorded at our inaugural Assessment Lead Programme residential training in Durham in August 2017. For more information about the Assessment Lead Programme and our Assessment Academy, head to www assessmentacademy.co.uk and to keep up to date with our latest news subscribe on iTunes to receive this monthly podcast to your device follow us on Twitter at Evidence in Edu or find our website at www.evidencebase.education